0: Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody. Thanks for joining Kim and I today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We're here every week talking wine with you. How are you, Kim?
1: I'm pretty good. How are you?
0: I am well, thank you. Great. Today, we want to start and talk to our listeners about bourbon barrel wine. And we have two articles. One was from PicksWine.com. And that one was, why is bourbon-based wine so popular? And then another one from Wine Business was saying, is this bourbon wine thing a passing fad? I want to start right away, Kim, asking you, what is your take on these bourbon barrel-aged wine?
1: Well, it's interesting that they were both two articles about pretty much the same topic coming out at the same time, because it's not like this is a brand new thing. We've had these wines on the market for years now. I want to say they started gaining in popularity maybe, what, five years ago or so? So it's not like this is a new trend, but it is starting to feel like maybe this is something that's here to stay. There seems to be still a lot of enthusiasm for this style. And frankly, I think that the wines that are produced, if you like that big, robust, really oak-influenced style of red wine that has a lot of sweet fruit behind it. I think that this is a very, very popular style of wine for people who like that type of wine.
0: And you're right, Kim, it's been out for a long time and it was a huge thing trending. And then lately it seemed to be, you know, they flooded the market. Everybody was coming out, every brand was coming out with one. And then it kind of went away for a while. Now I think they're trying to. I don't know if they're trying to bring it back or they're saying it's still popular. I'm not really seeing it as popular. I think people are still reaching for it. I think one of the major things we have to talk about first is the oak barrel thing. So Mm -hmm. the bourbon barrel thing. And not all of these wines are actually in bourbon barrels. So we talked in the past about the trick of oak aging and barrel aging. It could be just chips of the bourbon barrel it could be the the sides of the barrel it could be who knows it, it mm-hmm. there's no regulation on it so you have to be a little careful on what it says it's aged in and, and a lot of people are branding these bourbon barrel wines on certain name brand products to get you to to lock in on it i'm sure you've seen that ken where mm-hmm. it's it's with a major brand right the first the first producer was actually a fetzer brand called a thousand stories and i believe it was just a zinfandel and that's what i was kind of drawn into the the trend with was with that and it sold very well at the time and then everybody saw that and just kind of went with it and started creating their own what did you think kim is it still you think something popular in the wine world and i do i see? think it,
1: i think it's still popular Like I said before, you know, I feel like this is a style that's very appealing to people and much like the California red blend trend that has been going on for a little while. I actually feel like these two trends go hand in hand because they appeal to a similar wine consumer. I think someone who likes those wines like, you know, apothic red that are fruity and maybe have a little bit of sweetness to them. I feel like there is a somewhat of a similarity With these bourbon barrel wines, they have more of that vanilla spice, that real oak influence to them. But I feel like from sort of a fruitiness, sweetness standpoint, that there is a lot of similarity. And so if you like one of these styles, chances are you like the other one. So I I definitely see some sort of cross-marketing for these two. And you know, it's interesting that you brought up sort of the labeling conundrum of how do you really know how they're making these wines? Because as you said... Wine barrels are not always, or you know, whiskey barrels are not always the piece of equipment that these things are aging in because they are very expensive. And a lot of these wines tend to be on the on the more affordable side of the market. So I think it's very interesting that we have this emphasis on all of this idea of a barrel program, and yet sometimes it's just pieces of a barrel and not necessarily that romantic image of lots of wine aging over time in these big barrels at a winery.
0: And right now the I think the bourbon thing why these made it come up now is because it, the whiskey category bourbon is really popular. Mm-hmm. It's more popular right now than scotch or Irish whiskey, so maybe they're trying to play on that popularity and sure. you know gather those people and it's funny because in the past the liquor industry was aging their products in wine casks. I right? know, so I was going like, to bring that
1: up. Yeah, like
0: <laughs> scotch was in port casks or sherry casks and now it's going the other way. Mm-hmm. And what I think a lot of people may not realize is that a lot of the bigger companies that own say a scotch brand or whiskey brand or bourbon brand they also own some wine brands. Mm-hmm. So they're now thinking we're not going to get rid of our used barrels. Let's put some of our wine product in the barrel and let's market it with our bourbon brand or our scotch brand or our whiskey brand and use that to get our customers back. It's really a good marketing idea.
1: I have a and- sneaky suspicion that that's why a lot of these brands are on the market now is because of that sort of crossover thing within uh, the larger company that owns all of these brands and either that use of resources or just, like you said, clever marketing. I mean, I think that, frankly, it's sort of brilliant to be like, hey, we have barrels and we have brand recognition for this other thing that we make. So let's diversify our product line by doing X, Y, Z.
0: It's pretty smart. Yeah. And they're marketing to, they were saying Gen Z drinkers who might not like wine, but they like the taste of liquor. Hmm. So now they're trying to grab them in another category, which is smart marketing. And you also see, we talked, there's scotch barrel, there's tequila barrel aged wines now. And one of the big producers is Jacob's Creek Who also has a relationship with Chevis and Jameson. So they're putting those two names on the label. It's Mm -hmm. it's great marketing. And that's so
1: interesting because those are such, I feel like, forgive me for saying this, but sort of old fashioned brands. Yeah. You know, know, Chevis is a brand that has been consumed by older generations, I right. feel like, and and to try to revitalize the brand by doing something creative and different with it and trying to introduce it to a younger generation is
0: smart. What did you think about the talk about these concerns of winemakers that it may be adding flavors to wine that tends to add alcohol? Because mm-hmm. I'm sure you've noticed, and our listeners have noticed, when you buy these bourbon barrel aged, most of them are high alcohol.
1: Yeah. So this idea that the wine will pull alcohol from the barrel. Right. Yeah. I don't know technically and from a science perspective what goes on there. I don't know how much alcohol can get absorbed by wood. I mean, obviously we don't see this as an issue when barrels are reused for wine because they do tend to be the same style, same general
0: alcohol content.
1: So and I think that's an interesting thing to think about. I've but not
0: seen them aged for a very long period of time. No, I mean, the most I've seen is maybe a year at the most. Yeah. But, but I've managed if it's sat in there for a very extended amount of time, you could really suck up all the if there's any alcohol. Left yeah, in maybe, that barrel. Maybe. I Usually mean, I this... certainly
1: can notice the flavor differences. Right. And I personally like bourbon. So I, I mean, I'm not much. uh I'm not really one who gravitates towards particularly oaky wines in general. And yet I like those flavors in whiskey. <laughs> so I really like that like caramelly, vanilla, spicy sort of sweet notes in bourbon. And when I have one of these bourbon barrel aged red wines, I, I can taste it. I don't know if it's just that the... Uh, Oh, What's the phrase I'm looking for? The power of suggestion uh, that that I should be experiencing these things or if they're doing some other uh, manipulative magic to the wine to get those flavors in there. But I feel like it's there.
0: Yeah, you definitely notice the aroma profile is different mm-hmm. for these wines, for sure. They had a stat, Kim, that the US buys like 1.6 million cases or 20 million bottles of this product every year, which is. Yeah, I
1: mean, so that, I mean, it, I feel like that's really significant for a style of wine that's only been around for
0: eight, six years. And they call it a spirit's age category, which I never knew in wine. Hmm, yeah. And they, and they said, if this category was a varietal, it would rank 14th yep. among the the list. So, yep. I mean, that's pretty significant.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's also interesting about this topic and this style of wine, it kind of refers back to a topic that we talked about. I don't remember if it was last show or a couple shows ago about this trend that it's not necessarily about the grape variety. It's not about the varietal wine where it's like, okay, rosé is a category and people don't really care what the grapes are in that category. Red blends from the West Coast are a category. This is another one of those style categories that aren't necessarily tied to a specific grape variety, which that I feel is a bit of a sea change when it comes to the American wine drinking market. You know, this is the new thing for us. I mean, you know, unless you're talking about consumers who have always drunk European wines and and understand that it's the place and not necessarily the grape variety, but for the, the majority of American wine consumers, you know, it's, it's all about that variety on the label. So I think that this is a continuation of this greater trend, which I think it's pretty
0: cool. They were also saying the producers of these wines are saving a lot of money instead of using, say, new French oak barrels that cost $1,500, 2000 they can use a used bourbon barrel, which costs like $100. Mm-hmm. So they can save a lot of money that way. And there was a stat saying 30 years ago, only 15% of spirits consumers were women. And now that number is higher. So women Generally, like wine as well. So, they're trying to capture those people who've ventured into spirits more. Yep. And really capture what they drink for wine and blend them together. So, again, all comes back to marketing and some great ideas. What do you think about food pairing with these wines, Kim? We're at the barbecue season. I've had this asked to me so many times, I and bet. it's marketed that way that these bourbon. Wines are perfect for barbecue.
1: That's immediately where my mind would go. Yeah. Um, Barbecue, burgers, anything off the grill, probably too heavy for, you know, fish off the grill, but probably even barbecue chicken would probably be fine. We do see a lot of smoke infused um, spice rubs and sauces and wet mops and you know things like that for putting on your food. L- liquid smoke is pretty a pretty popular addition at my house <laughs> to barbecue sauce. Yeah. So I can definitely see um, anything that is off the grill that has that smoky characteristic playing really nicely. I should look up some food pairings for bourbon and see if there's any crossover with what's recommended as far as food pairings that would go with these wines too.
0: Yeah, that'd be an interesting tasting idea. Have you seen them on wine lists
1: I feel like I have not at, you know, super high end places, but for something that would go great with a burger.
0: I mean, I was just thinking like a burger restaurant or a barbecue, if they had this by the glass, it would probably just be the perfect thing. But I've never really seen it that I can think of.
1: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine for your questions and comments. More information about Mark, you can go to his website at franklinlickers.com. And for more information about myself, you can go to CommonwealthWineSchool.com. Hello, and welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. I am Kim Simone, and I am here with my co-host, Mark Lindsay. And every week we talk to you about trending topics in the wine world. And sometimes we give you nifty tips that uh, can help you in your wine education journey or just your everyday uh, enjoyment of wine. And today we have a little tip about what temperature does wine spoil at? And not so much what should you serve your wine at, but if you are storing it or if it gets stuck in the car for a few hours and it's really, really hot out, have you irreparably harmed your bottle of wine? What did you think about this article in uh, Wine Enthusiast, Mark?
0: They made some good points that I wasn't really thinking of as far as extremes and how we always think about what's the ideal temperature to store at. Mm-hmm. I've never over thought, the long term, yeah. Over See, this the long this term. was like
1: more of a short term. Uh, there were a lot of points about short term storage. Uh, there was a little bit of talk about long term storage in this article too, but I, I thought it was uh, kind of handy to have this little like uh, snapshot of, of of a short amount of time and keeping your wine, hopefully not at eighty degrees.
0: Typically, they're saying we should store between fifty three and fifty seven degrees, which I think, unless you're in a controlled wine specialty cooler mm-hmm. you're never really doing that your fridge is too cold your your house is either too warm or too cold your basement fluctuates
1: yeah Every that's the thing with mine house. is that i have everything in the closet in the basement and it stays cool but it still fluctuates
0: Yeah, it fluctuates in the winter. I'm sure it's getting much colder. Mm -hmm. In summer, it starts heating up a little bit.
1: Yeah. It's like in the winter, it's perfect white wine drinking temperature. And in the summer, it's great red wine drinking temperature. And it's never appropriate for both.
0: And too hot or too cold for any amount of time, it just starts aging the wine more and hurting and doing things to the wine that we don't want to happen. And you mentioned the point, Kim, about when we have it in our car, and I think that's probably a tip a lot of people don't think about. They might buy a bottle, doesn't matter, winter, summer, and you put it in your car and you don't go home right away, and it's just exposed to one extreme or the other for just too much time, mm-hmm. and it really hurts the wine. Talking about hurt, Kim, it's made a point saying better wine, better made wine tends to withstand Extended temperatures more. Why do you think that?
1: So I think that that is related to ageability. And there was an awful lot in this article about how what you're doing when you're exposing your bottle of wine to warmer than optimal temperatures. So we're not saying 80 degrees in the low 70s, maybe the mid 70s, entire summer, that what you're doing is speeding up the aging process of the wine. So, so not one high, hot, extreme
0: temperature. Just, no, no. Just,
1: I think this was more like a longer term. If you just aren't If you don't have the capability to really store your wines in a place that keeps them at that lower temperature in the 50s, what's really going to happen is that what that wine should taste like in, say, five years, if it's stored in the high 50s, you're going to get it in a much shorter amount of time. And I think this just goes back to quality wines that are meant for aging will obviously last longer than something that doesn't have the structural components to stand up. That time in the bottle. And I think that that is what they're trying to get to is that a bottle with those structural components, like high acid, like high tannins, a lot of fruit has enough guts to withstand these suboptimal storing conditions, I I think is really what they were trying to get across here.
0: And they did use a word we don't like him. They said cheap wines. Yeah, I didn't say it. Not me. I didn't say it. Yeah. (laughs) I know better. On the show, not (laughs) cheap. But yeah, so. Extreme temp- so room temperature, we always talk about too. Kim was a term they it's say, like whose te- room? Yeah, whose room? Yeah, the, and, and this is all going way back when there was no temperature control in people's mm-hmm. houses, so it was, probably was 53 to 57 most of the time at people's homes, but yeah, and then no being, air
1: conditioning. So in your summer, it was uh, it was pretty warm,
0: and you can really, I mean, just leaving it in your normal 70 degree home over time. They said anything above 70 is the danger zone for, mm-hmm. for wine. So
1: just I'm glad they did mention the um, don't store your wine on top of a refrigerator kind of thing. Which everybody
0: does. Or next yeah. to the stove.
1: <laughs> or next to the stove. Yeah. Any place that gets these fluctuations in temperature. And also for the fridge thing, the um, the vibration and the movement back and forth of the refrigerator as it cycles on and off is also not very good for your bottle of wine.
0: One of the things also, Kim, was how can you tell looking at a bottle if it m- may have been exposed to an extreme temperature?
1: See, I think that one's a h- really hard one.
0: You, you, Because you didn't agree with what they said or you um, think you don't? Well,
1: they said that sometimes you can see that the cork has started to pop out, but I don't necessarily feel like that is always going to
0: happen in this situation. What, what would you see? What would what, I see? You mean you don't you don't see any signs? Is that what you're saying? So, yeah, you're saying? that more yeah. often
1: than not, I don't see any signs.
0: Yeah. The bulging out thing, they're saying it's a molecular reaction, mm-hmm. which I guess is based on temperature. But also, I always thought there was something with it's re-fermenting, or with pressure. As far as maybe it's f- still fizzy or style yeah. wine, or something. Re-fermenting
1: like that. is never a good idea. <laughs> right,
0: right. And that cork would be way more out of the. or right. You would, you would know. My tip is kind of this: when you go to shop for wine, when you walk into a place, you can tell a lot about how the wine is going to be too. If it's like extremely hot, mm-hmm. or if things are in in windows or under. You yeah, know, the
1: window thing. The window thing gets me.
0: Then you have to worry because it's obviously already exposed to too much temperature, or if there's wines that are in a cooler that not supposed to be in a cooler, or something like that. So hmm. I
1: mean, that's an interesting thing to look out for that I had never thought of before.
0: The cooler thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen places that put some red wines in the cooler.
1: So do do you think that that is because they've gotten too warm in the past and they're trying to? fix it or just as like a, a safeguard against the environment being too hot.
0: I think it's just an education thing that they think all wine just goes in there. Or or maybe they have a customer that buys it and wants it chilled. Maybe
1: some people do like their red wines cold, but it's not gonna be cold by the time you get it home.
0: Yeah, true.
1: But there is something to be said for paying attention to the temperature of what you are buying at the store. And, you know, I, I tend to think about these things when it comes to purchasing wine on a larger scale you know as as a wholesale from sorry as a wholesale customer and like well how is that wine being treated before it gets to my business is right, that right. in a hot truck all day how is it stored at the warehouse you know there are all of these other factors that consumers can't really control because you don't know all of those steps that <laughs> that happened before that wine got to the store or got got in your carriage. So yeah, that's
0: a good point because many customers will say more to me. They're worried about buying beer and it getting it's cold and then it gets hot and then mm-hmm. it gets cold again. But very very that's a rarely, myth by the way. <laughs> yeah, but very really <laughs> does anybody care about what temperatures their wine have gone through before yeah. they? Well, because I think the that there's
1: that myth that once you chill down beer. You can't let it come back to room temperature and then re-chill it down,
0: which is totally not a thing. Yeah,
1: I don't know where or how that started.
0: But you should be more concerned about, like you were saying, what happened to that wine before you you got it Mm -hmm. was in, in many times, for instance, the distributors are packing their trucks at night for their deliveries, right? Most of the time they pack them at the door and they're sitting outside, right? And those trucks are not temperature controlled. So it's, and then it sits in that truck all day, depending if it's hot or cold. And then it's sitting probably outside while they're bringing it in. So it's exposed to temperature change a lot before you take it out of the store or out of the restaurant before Mm -hmm. you served it. So that's what people should be concerned about. It also leads to, if you direct ship something to your house, A lot of Mm -hmm. people don't know that a lot of people won't ship wines certain times of the year because of the temperatures. Yep. Have you seen those temperature charts that a lot of people use for shipping? No. Any real good, I don't want to say good, but any company who's worried about shipping things across country will have a chart showing the average temperatures and it'll actually put a sensor on a track so you can see if it was exposed for any amount of time. And basically, you probably just means you should let it sit. You shouldn't open it up. And it may be some s- sort of uh bottle shock or travel shock mm-hmm. type of sickness thing to it. So, but yeah, pay attention to what temperatures you're, you're getting things at and look at how they're stored and especially in your homes, look how you're treating them. And this always happens in my house, Kim. I'll open a bottle, I'll leave it. In a certain spot, then I won't mention how or who, but when I come back, it's near the, it's near the stove. (laughs) Uh,
1: The the bottle just mysteriously gets moved around. Yeah,
0: a ghost, (laughs) but it's, it's not a good thing. And you could taste it. I mean, I've experienced it where found something I knew wasn't stored right. And Mm -hmm. it's just off from what it should be. I've had to
1: send bottles back because of that. From the distributor? No, as a, as a consumer. Oh, in a yeah, in a yeah. dining situation.
0: Yeah. Well, people people should. I mean, if it's off for any reason, you could I am sure you didn't know it was a temperature thing though, right? Did you you just oh, knew I, it was absolutely off.
1: no, yeah. I knew it was a temperature thing. It was yeah. very clearly a storage <laughs> storage problem.
0: Wow. I remember one time, Kim, I received it was a I believe it was a sangria. Came in, I received it and it was so hot to the touch. Oh wow. I, I couldn't touch the bottle. And I was thinking, wow, something is wrong here. And I called up and I said, you know, I just got this delivery and this bottle is just, I can't touch it. Hot, yeah. And they said, yeah, we just uh, flat, what are they, flash pasteurize or something?
1: It shouldn't and, still be hot and in the bottle. It was still hot. It was still hot. <laughs> Imagine that. They where they pasteurized yeah. it at the warehouse.
0: They pasteurized it when they bottled it or in the bottle as they bought it. It was like the day before. And it was still hot to the touch, and that was their normal thing. And I was like, "Wow, very interesting." Yeah, strange, strange. You learn
1: something new every day.
0: So this was Wine Enthusiasts Magazine giving this tip about uh, serving serving temperatures. They say between forties and sixties, and that's whites and reds. Mm -hmm. Again, we always have the thing about serving reds too warm, right? And they should be in the sixties, so high sixties. I
1: like, I like, actually, I like mid. Mid to low 60s for my rids. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I agree with that.
1: But who's, go- I mean, honestly, how many people are taking the temperature of their wine? I'm not sure I've ever used my wine yeah, thermometer, thermometer that goes in the top of the bottle and uh-huh. you can check the temperature of your wine.
0: That goes back to the gadgets. I think I bought That's one right. you could put in, I bought the one you could yep. put the tape on the bottle. And it, oh! It's oh! It's like like
1: like those forehead things.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I I just the other day I found I never opened it. So it oh like, boy, yeah, another gadget not used.
1: Oh, Mark and his gadgets. But they're out there. Thank you for joining us today on the wonderful world of wine. We have been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. You can find us every week on Franklin Radio WFPR 102.9 and on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, where you can leave us your questions and comments. You can also find us on Twitter at Wine Education. Cheers.